test scores aren't everything. Kids are way more than test scores. And the bureaucrat never sees all of these other issues like gang violence going on in the schools, drug activity, mental health issues. These are things that need to be seen on the ground. And I think parents have the best information to make these kinds of decisions. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante with the Freedom Media Network. We are here today with Corey DeAngelis. He's director of School Choice for the Reason Foundation, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We're talking about freedom today, but specifically, we're talking about perhaps one of the most important freedoms we have, educational freedom. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, Corey, so the only set question we ever have on this show, you've seen it, my shirt says it, the word freedom. What does the word freedom mean to you? Uh, freedom from coercion. And if we're talking about the education sector, I'm mostly talking about having the freedom to take your education dollars for your child and use that education allotment at whatever school you want or whatever other type of educational uh, setup you want, whether that's homeschooling or unschooling or a homeschool co-op or any type of private school. Or you could take that same educational allotment to your residentially assigned school if you want to do that too. Sure, sure. When you think about coercion, you know, my wife and I, we well, we unschool our kids and a lot of people don't know what that is. And it's a term that it's, it can be a loaded term. And we used to homeschool and homeschool has become so mainstream that there's different segments of it within homeschooling, you know. But when thinking about coercion, you know, one of the first questions we get is, well, aren't you reporting in? How do they know they, I guess, meaning the government, right, or society or some self-appointed, you know, elders, how do they know that your kids are learning? From a freedom standpoint, what's wrong with that argument or that question? Well, they don't know what's going on in the government schools either. So, I mean, yeah, you can act, ask that same question right back at the traditional system. And by that logic, we shouldn't fund government-run systems either if they're not teaching kids to read and write or do math and arithmetic. So and other behavioral we, suicide rate, alcoholism, murders yeah, in the schools. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of problems going on with the government run school system as well and look, even if they do know that things aren't going on really well in, in that system, they're not doing anything about it to make anything better except for throwing more money at the problem which hasn't shown to improve outcomes in education over and over with all these different types of outcomes over time. And then secondly, I mean, it's not for them to know. It's not their children. It's your children. You should be the one determining whether the educational environment is working well for your child or not. And I think you have the most information about whether that's actually right. working for your child or not. What these bureaucrats typically do is they'll look at average test scores in a school and say, check, this one's working or now, this one doesn't seem to be working because they have lower average test scores, but there's a lot of nuance in there and a lot of kids that are being served really well in, in school A and a lot of kids that aren't being really well served. And test scores aren't everything. Kids are way more than test scores and the bureaucrat never sees all of these other issues like gang violence going on in the schools, drug activity, mental health issues. These are things that need to be seen on the ground. And I think parents have the best information to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah. And, and you know, Thomas Edison, the famous story of he was eight years old and his teacher told him he had an adult brain. Nowadays, they give him drugs, tell him to sit down, shut up. You have a disorder. We may never have the light bulb. Now, people say that's hyperbole. Well, I don't know. His genius, people saw as a disorder and, and an adult brain. So his mom took him in and, and knew best for him. Even with our four kids, there is 
stark differences in how they learn and how they consume information between our daughter who's 13, almost 14, and our son. And, you know, our son, when there's other people around, he gets overstimulated. Now we see a situation in a school where they may say he's got a problem. We're going to put him in the corner. We're going to do whatever. And the system seems to be set up in such an industrialized, militarized way that there's no, you know, the parents do know best what's going on. Now, some degree, and I think we talked about this, on, teachers can be correct in that, listen, I, I, I'm, it's a top-down model. I have no flexibility, things like that. Um, but this, can you talk a little bit about the current model of schooling, not education, but schooling? And I think a lot of people don't understand that it wasn't always this way, this militarized industrial churn out, churn out the factory bots model. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had people educated in the homes for centuries, right? Um, but, you know, starting in around 1852, we had our first compulsory education law in the United States, which was in Massachusetts. We actually had a compulsory education law in the Massachusetts colony before that, the old deluder Satan Act in 1647. <laughs> so Massachusetts was a first on, on both of these uh, laws. But so, yeah, for a long time, we had home-based schooling or one-room schoolhouses, not these huge, gigantic shopping mall warehouses, essentially, that, that we have today. Um, and then also concurrently, we have people that are homeschooling. We have people that are unschooling today. So, And then we also have a private system of, of education as well with private schools. So that there exists these other forms of education is evidence itself that it doesn't have to be this way for the vast majority of kids, which just by out of you know the not having good enough fortune to escape the traditional public school system they are residentially assigned to this school and they they have to go there and if they want to leave or or homeschool they have to cover all of those costs out of pocket while paying for this other school that they would have went to through the property tax system so they don't in most systems you know parents don't get to take any of that money with them it's essentially like you know, being residentially assigned to Walmart. And if you don't like the product at Walmart and the service, which I tend to like the product and service at Walmart, but I don't like their, I don't like their produce very much, for sure. example. So I might want to take my grocery dollars to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. Yeah. Um, today, I'm able to take my grocery dollars to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, but in the, in the school system, essentially, if you leave Walmart, your money has to stay with Walmart, which is a huge problem that I see in the current system. And one of the recent tweets, and by the way, if you're not following Corey on Twitter, you got to follow him. It's, 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 it's insightful, but yet funny because there are some in the educational hierarchy whose heads are about to explode when, because uh, they, you expose them. And, and one of your recent tweets was about Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and that, listen, if I'm not crazy about it and I leave Whole Foods to go to Trader Joe's, I don't feel guilty about leading. It's not your job to fix Trader Joe's. Now, if enough people don't like Trader Joe's and leave, they're either going to go out of business or they're going to get better, which is what happens in a free market, right? Which we don't have currently. Yeah. And that happens in the education system as well. When, when government run schools face competition, we have about 28 studies on this now. Another one just came out a couple of days ago from Florida, finding that when school choice competition comes into play with private school vouchers or tax credit scholarship programs, the government run schools actually tend to get better as well. And there's 28 studies on this now, 26 of the 28 find statistically significant positive effects overall. Zero of these 28 studies find statistically significant negative effects overall. So when people say that 
oh, we're just stealing money from the public schools. Well, my first response is, well, no, you're not, we're not, school choice doesn't steal money from public schools. Public schools steal money from families. That Those dollars are meant for educating children, and those dollars should go to children that we should fund students, not systems. And those children should be able to, and their families should be able to pick where to take those education dollars. So the the reality is that the current system is what is actually stealing money in the first place. People just deserve to have it back and, and deserve to be able to pick that government-run school yeah. or a private school or a homeschool option uh, if, if they want. And with the Whole Foods versus Trader Joe's analogy, I mean, what I my argument was, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, school choice hasn't been shown to fix public. That does nothing to fix the public schools where a lot of kids are, are stuck in right now. And my response was, well, if I go from Whole Foods or to Trader Joe's or vice versa, I don't worry about whether Trader Joe's is getting any better when I leave to Whole Foods. That, right. I, I shouldn't be responsible for whether Trader Joe's gets any better. All I, all I know is that I want to get a better outcome for myself. And e either way, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that with competition, the government-run schools get better as well. So in that sense, school choice is the rising tide that lifts all boats. And you have a study in Texas that shows that when you talk about dollars and cents, I mean, I, I, I'm not up on this. I'm, I'm sure you know, but in, in uh, Chicago is twelve, thirteen thousand $13,000 per pupil, something, or was that more, here? I think it's more than that. In the U.S. Okay. on average, we spend around $14,700 per pupil. And that was in 2016, which is the most recent data set. So it's adjusting for inflation over well over $15,000 per pupil. And given that spending increases every year in the government-run school system, it's probably closer to fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars per kid in the U.S. So I would wow. think Chicago is a little higher than that. I would assume just relative they, to the national. Average. Them in D.C. used to be compete for the highest, I think, at some point. But and, yeah, and their schools are not. However, you ma manage or measure outcomes, it ain't happening, right? <laughs> yeah, just so you brought up D.C. D.C. spends twenty-eight thousand dollars per pupil. Looking again at the National Center for Education Statistics twenty sixteen data, if you take all the dollars spent divided by students, it's over sixteen, uh, over twenty-eight thousand dollars per pupil. So that's a ton of money, over twice, about twice the national average, and their outcomes aren't all that great in D.C. And if you look at the most recent federal evaluation of the D.C. voucher program. Uh, the kids in the voucher program only got, on average, in the most recent year of the evaluation, $9,500 per kid. And you compare that to the $28,000, it's a random assignment study. That study found no effects on math reading test scores for a third of the cost, but then also very like a 35% increase in the likelihood of saying that the kids are in a very safe school, huge increases in satisfaction, and huge increases in attendance as well at a third of the cost. So it's not about money, it's about incentives, right? You can you can spend a billion dollars per child and still get the same outcomes if you're not allocating the dollars efficiently. And if you don't have a strong incentive to allocate those dollars efficiently and spend money wisely, those kids aren't gonna be any better off. If you just throw the money down the drain, nothing's gonna change. And the money, when you say per child, but it's not being spent on the child. I mean, the, I, I referenced the study in Texas. I mean, it showed things, administrative costs, janitorial costs, because when there's competition, right, if Trader Joe's is gonna go out of business, if they're good business, they start finding out where they can cut costs, right? And, and improve quality. Yeah, and if customers have a say in the matter, uh, Trader Joe's will spend the money to give the customers the best products and services available. But if the customers are stuck shopping at Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's can just pay their administration much more money. They can just spend it on hiring more people and creating more jobs without actually delivering a better product 
for the customers. And while they're at it, they'll raise the prices on the customers if they have a monopoly, which is what we have in the current government-run school system. So in my study, I found that competition with charter schools, uh, essentially in Texas, was associated with uh, less spending on janitorial services and uh, administrators and support staff. So that goes with the argument that monopolies lead to administrative bloat. And that's why I think in the public school system or the government-run school system, whatever you want to call it, we've seen huge increases in funding. In the U.S. overall, or in just the last half century, inflation-adjusted spending since, 26, since 1960 has increased by 237%, whereas outcomes have remained flat over that same time period. So if you don't have an incentive to spend money wisely, why should you? And that's just what we've seen over time in the current system. And, and you, look at, you look at other monopolies, right? Utilities, despite fake deregulation, which is not real dairy because someone still owns the pipes and, and, uh, or even in the, in, uh, you know, internet or, you know, where there's monopolies, no one would ever feel guilty about ditching their internet provider, their natural gas provider, and worry about protecting the jobs of those people. But that's... <coughs> It's the same the kind argument. of argument yeah. that we're hearing. That, well, people will just say that education is different, but it's not. We have higher education and people get to choose the schools that they that they use. When we have Pell Grants, which is a voucher for higher education, the families are able to choose, you know, if I want to go to a public university or a private university, a religious university or a non-religious university. So if you're going to support Pell Grants, and a lot of people on the left support Pell Grants, you should also support vouchers at the K-12 level too. A lot of people on the left will will denounce school choice at K through 12 level, but they'll be okay with it with higher ed, and then they'll also they'll also be okay with it for pre K programs. A lot of people don't think about this, but pre K programs allow allow you to spend those education dollars for your kid on a private provider or a public provider of pre K. So if you're for vouchers for pre K and you're for vouchers for higher ed, why would you not be for vouchers? in those middle years between, you know, K through 12, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then like, I like to bring up food stamps too. So if you're for food stamps, and if you think about the food stamp system, we don't have the, we don't have those food dollars go straight to a government run grocery store and then residentially assign families (laughs) and say, you must shop at that government run grocery store. No, everybody would think that's just lunacy and it would be lunacy, but that's exactly how the school system is set up. We have the dollars going straight to the government run schools, but Instead, it should be more like the food stamp system where the, f- the money follows the family. Right. With right. food stamps, I can pick Walmart. I can pick Trader Joe's. I can pick a whole bunch of different private providers of, of food, and that's how it should be. Everybody would just think it would be ridiculous to do it how we do it with the education system. And then to get back real quick on the spending money, uh, yeah. Ben Scafidi at Kennesaw State University actually did a really interesting study on this. It's kind of similar to my study in Texas. I actually cited his work. He's done two of these studies, one in 2012, I think, and one in 2017, I want to I say. But they, they had the same result. And what he did was just look at spending patterns in the U.S., all 50 states and then overall as well. And he found that between 1992 and 2014, per pupil spending in the U.S., after adjusting for inflation, so in real terms, increased by about 27%. But at the same time, he found that real teacher salaries after adjusting for inflation over the same time period actually dropped by 2%. And so that's another 
uh, goes back to my argument that if you don't have to spend the money wisely, you spend it on administrative bloat. It's not even going to, it's not even going to the teachers. It's not. Exactly. So school choice benefits teachers too. A lot of people think that school choice is like this weird battlefield between where you have teachers on one side who people say are monopolists and then families and parents and children on the other side, but it's not like that at all. Parents and, and teachers should be on the same side of this fight. And that should be for school choice because school choice benefits consumers, families, uh, by delivering better, better products and services and spending money wisely. But it also benefits teachers in, in that it in, in introduces competitive pressures to the labor market. If you were going out and striking against your employer, let's say Walmart, you wouldn't go and strike against your competition. You wouldn't go and strike against Trader Joe's and Whole Foods because they're your exit option if Walmart doesn't give you a raise. Right, right. right. So yeah. in the public school system, teachers should be fighting really hard for school choice. And there's six studies on this, five studies on this, sorry. There are five studies on this that look at what happens when school choice competition comes into the labor market. All five of the studies find that statistically significant positive effects on teacher salaries for teachers in the public schools. And that's because the public schools start to say, we're going to lose these teachers to the private market because of this labor market competition. So we better up our game by giving them more autonomy, giving them higher salaries. Interesting. And so I've argued all along that school choice benefits teachers too. So the arguments that you make, common sense, right? Arguments uh, in regards to Pell Grants and, and the argument of separation of church and state and we have Pell Grants, the K through 12, or I mean, sorry, the pre-K. So what, what's their argument and what's the truth behind why they're making the argument of K through 12, that it is somehow a different universe than K, than pre-K and Pell Grants? I wish I had a, a, a you know, you said my, my answer is pretty logical. They don't have one, so I can't really give you one. Uh, they don't have a defensible argument. They'll either just say it's different for whatever reason. Um, but that ends about there. And I think it's because it's about protecting the current system. I think that there's an inconsistency because, you know, uh, it's all about relative to the default. So Pell Grants relative to the default of having no government intervention and or little government intervention or not as much intervention in the higher ed sector, Pell Grants relative to that are an increase in government size. Pre-K is an increase in government size relative to our K through 12 uh, mandated system that we have today. So vouchers are essentially a decrease in government control relative to the current system. And so they see that as a, a threat to the monopoly of the government run schools. And look, I've said before million, millions and millions of times that school choice is not anti-government school. It's not anti-public school. It's not anti-charter school. It's just pro-child, pro pro-choice. It's pro-family. It's I don't care if you pick a private school or a public school or a magnet school or a charter school. I don't care if you want to do homeschooling or unschooling. If 10 years down the line after we have universal school choice, everybody's still in their government-run school, I'd be happy with that. Let's just keep it that way. I just want people to have the option to be able to leave if their school is not doing what they feel that, that needs to be done for their own children. So looking at um, the opponents, and a lot of people will say, uh, right off the bat, teachers unions, right, are, are, are opposing it. But there's also a number of folks that are in the kind of the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, what would you call them, the Illuminati of education, right, who, who, who oppose it. Uh -huh. yeah. But I remember 
back in my political days looking at polling. And there were a lot of, uh, if you go in rural areas, people who were programmed to be scared. They were in white rural areas who were programmed to be scared that, oh my gosh, school choice means they're going to bus these kids from the inner city to our schools. Uh, and then there was a certain amount of lim limousine liberals who thought the same thing. Uh, we're, yeah. up, we're up in uh, Lake County we or Lake this. Forest, Illinois, right. and oh my gosh, yeah. now these inner city kids, it's better to keep them there. And, you know, um, is it... Is it is the main thrust kind of all of the above? <laughs> yes, the unions, but then also, yeah, people have already bought into a system based on how the system exists today. And so things like open enrollment school choice, which, which is, is essentially just you can pick different types of government-run schools. Some people oppose that because they're like, hey, I already bought this house and paid a premium on my house to be able to go to this particular school. But that's not a good defense of the current system. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. You shouldn't be residentially assigned to a school. So just because you have a vested interest does not mean that 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 it should remain that way forever. I mean, if if you bought, you know, to if you bought a house next to the best restaurant, you shouldn't be the only one to get to go to that restaurant just because you bought a house close to it. Right? Is that is that a big reason the property tax funding system is not a good one? Because People can make that argument of, I paid here and I bought here based on the schools and now you're going to mess it all up. Yeah, I mean, that's just an argument to allow people to have a certain amount of education funding that they're required. Like, so like in my ideal world, you know, or let's just say a little bit better of a world than we have today is that every we can still fund education for everyone and say, let's just say that's, you know, X amount of dollars. Every house household should be able to either take that property tax money and be able to send it to the government like they're doing t today, or they should be able to send it to a scholarship granting organization, a private uh, organization. So we're, you were, we're in the Cato building right now. Andrew Colson, who was the director of, at the Center for Educational Freedom here a few years ago, um, this, I think he made this argument originally that we can still fund education, but create a competitive market for education funding. And if, you know, if the government's spending money so efficiently, then everybody will just continue to donate their money to the government right, for education. Right. So we could still require that funding. But hey, at least let's have a competitive market for this funding and say, well, I think this scholarship granting organization is much more efficient with my dollars. So I'm going to send my dollars there. And maybe I send 50% of my dollars here, 50% of my dollars there, because this is actually leading to a better educational system. And again, you can still just send it to the government, but my thought is not as many people will send it to the government because government is notorious for being very wasteful and in, in spending it. Uh, education dollars or any type of dollars, essentially. Well, it's, and it's so interesting because um, now this is a broader issue, but when you look at some billionaires who come in and say like a Buffett or a Gates and they're like, well, taxes are too low. There are going to be more taxes. But, well, they're not. They didn't choose to pay more taxes. But when you look at, say, a Gates, his dollars, I mean, he's a, a, an intelligent guy, I would assume, right? He's not sending money when he has a choice. He's not sending. Now, we could argue, maybe we talk about how he's spending his money and, and whether it's wisely, but he's not. The bottom line is he trusts himself. He trusts private private foundations versus he's not sending it to the U.S. government, um, well, directly. Um, but isn't that amazing how these billionaires who want everyone else to pay more taxes 
when it comes to how they're going to spend their own money. They don't trust it. Um, and they don't think other people, I think, right? It doesn't come down to fundamentally, you see this on healthcare choice and you see it on educational choice. Fundamentally, people think that humans are too dumb to be able to make a choice. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the basic argument. Whenever you push someone for a long enough time, someone who's defending the government run school system, their argument tends to end up somewhere along the lines of, well, there's Im information asymmetries in the education market, if you're speaking to an economist, or they'll just say, they're, they're, these low-income families are just either not smart enough or they just don't have the information, is the argument. And it's, it's just, th they'll be kind of nice yeah. about how they say it, but the thrust of the argument is that, well, the bureaucrats in Washington know much better about your kid, you know, what your kids need than you do. So you shouldn't be able to pick schools because huh, they're going to advertise to you. And if they advertise to you, you're going to be tricked. Mm -hmm. And my response is, well, we, we're bombarded with advertisements for food and everything else right. in life. So does that mean that um, uh, someone in Washington should pick where I, you know, what kind of grocery basket I have? I don't think so. Some people yeah. actually do well, think, I was don't say, give them any ideas. I was going right? to say, you know, Bernie, some people, Bernie yeah. thinks that would be fine, you know. Um, yeah, we can't pick 20 different deodorants, exactly, for example, because, right. you know, why, why do you need 20 different yeah. deodorants? Well, because people have different preferences than you. <laughs> I, I people think, aren't widgets, right? People are different. And so with schooling, it's, it's even more important than deodorant, right? Because people learn in different ways. People are interested in different things. Yeah. So the argument for 20 deodorants is even stronger stronger in the education sector because it's not just, you know, a one size fit all thing that can work for everybody. And informational asymmetries can be fixed by a 15 year old computer program or building an orbits for education, right? I mean, <laughs> well, these arguments can be made about any, any industry. And yeah. like if we, if the default was that we were residentially assigned to grocery stores, you'd hear these arguments that oh, nutrition is a very difficult thing to figure out, right. man. We've had fad diets for a long time. How are people able to figure out which groceries to pick? We got to residentially assign you to this particular grocery store where the, the food pyramid is going to be used um, by the bureaucrats and we're going to force you to have those types of choices. You can make this argument for anything. I mean, with clothing, uh, you're not a fashion designer. I don't want you clothing your own, you know, yourself. So we have to residentially assign you to this retail shop that's run by the government. It, well, you know, and, on that argument, it's interesting because in Chicago, you know, they talk about the food deserts where you can't find food. Yet, when a Walmart wanted to, with lower cost, wanted to locate in Chicago, it was protested. Why? Non-union. Well, wait, I thought we cared about nutrition. I thought we cared about the people. Now we're caring about that. Uh, and I believe they were, I think, I'm probably... Well, I'm probably right, but uh, we're using non-union workers to uh, walk the picket line, uh, to, to picket, which is which is a frequent uh, occurrence. But you know, I, I guess it comes down to you should be more concerned about if you leave Trader Joe's, yeah. what about all the jobs of the people at Trader Joe's, i.e., the teachers? Everything you've shown, all the data shows that actually this competitive pressures will make them better. But I think that's probably why, would you agree, you got to separate out the teachers from the teachers' union, and they're not the same thing. Oh, yeah, right? I'm, yeah. I'm definitely pro-teacher, but I'm not necessarily pro-teachers' union, and those are absolutely two different things. And what we've seen over time with Ben Scafidi's studies and other studies that the teachers' union has a bad track, track record of actually 
you know, raising teacher salaries in the U.S. over over the 1992 to 2014, they actually dropped in real terms by two percent. Although spending has gone up by 27 percent, something is not going on here. But if you look, not going on, you know, uh, in favor of teachers here. If you look at the Chicago teacher strike, what did they they fight fight for? They fought for some salary increases, but one of their main thrusts behind this 11 day strike was to increase support staff. And when you increase support staff, what happens? Uh, you get more uh, union members and you get more union dues. So you get more political support and political pressure and political power from having more people in the buildings. And you don't get that same benefit if you just increase teacher salaries. So, so administrative <laughs> staff are union members, are teachers union members, or they can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like I was speaking with you, you know, off the record earlier a little bit was about the Janus decision, Mark Janus, actually, Supreme Court decision that happened a year or two ago. Uh, actually allows or makes it uh, illegal for unions to require uh, teachers and other public sector workers to pay union dues. So we might see a smaller impact of the unions going forward. No one's rigorously studied this yet, but just from that particular ruling in Supreme Court, we would expect union power to decrease uh, because of that. And it should decrease if they're not actually you know, spending money wisely on the teachers and fighting for policies that actually do benefit teachers uh, directly. Uh, and again, I think, you know, having more people in the classrooms is much more beneficial to union leaders than 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 just raising teacher salaries. And 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 I mean, employees do make choices wisely, or at least they make the choices, right? Because y you look at right to work states, I mean, going back, what, half a century, the jobs have flowed to states where there's not right to work and where you get have a right to work state, they choose not to have unions. No one is forcing them not to go in the union. When you offer them the choice, they don't want it. Um, and I remember sitting through, it was, uh, it was actually at church and uh, it was in Illinois. And uh, this was when the Scott Walker, when he yeah. first passed the educational bill and the priest actually said from the pulpit and we have this situation up north of the border where they're forcing people not to be you know to no, be able to union unions and they have a choice yeah yeah and, and i never say i'm anti-union either right i just want institutions to be able to have the choice and the problem with the public education system though is that it's a public sector union we have compulsory um, education laws and we have compulsory funding of of these educational institutions so like in chicago it was 11 day strike who was, who was, you know, screwed from that deal? It was the students and the families because they had to figure out where to send their kids. And the, they, the taxpayers still had to pay uh, into their property taxes. You didn't get any 11 day, right, right. you didn't get an 11 day tax refund yeah. in that because you didn't get those, the, the, the services that you're provided. So that's the only problem that I have with the current system in, in uh, government run schools having unions is because we have compulsory education laws and compulsory funding and if, if people had school choice, I wouldn't mind at all because then people could vote with their feet. And, you know, if, if this school that you're assigned to uh, has like a 20-day strike or whatever, I can, take my, I can take my money elsewhere. I can take my child to a school that doesn't just close at random and, and, and that actually serves the children instead of puts them on, you know, on the streets for 11 days, essentially. Um, so I think school choice would, would remedy this public sector union problem uh in 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 chicago and elsewhere in the united states so like with things like police you know they're not allowed to have 
unions are, are they're not allowed to strike, right. for example. And and the reason for that is, well, it's a safety reason. And I think another reason is that, well, if they strike, you don't get their services and you still have to pay for them. Right. And we can talk about how that could be fixed, but that's not as easy of a fix as school choice, where school choice is you can vote with your feet to another place. And what's good is if you vote with your feet to another place, then the schools, the school districts would actually have an incentive to spend the money wisely. Right. But what happens currently is that is the customers are the ones that are feeling all the pain. And, and so nothing really changes and the spending patterns kind of uh, return to their normal course and they just throw more bodies into Because the, they have the to buildings. be customers. They're, they're compelled to be customers of you. They can't choose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like if I'm striking against Walmart and I'm an, a Walmart employee, I want Walmart to feel the pain. I don't want um, the customers of Walmart to feel yeah. the pain, right? Because I, I want right. the, the employer to pay me more. That's the point of a strike. Yeah. And what happens is Walmart has one of two decisions to make. They can either fire these workers and so that their customers come ba- can come back, or they say, oh, well, look, if we don't have our workers, we can't serve our customers, so let's pay them more like they want. And so then the teachers win, the customers win, the employees win. That's a win-win. And the, the, big, the, the only thing that we're missing in this calculation here. In the public school system is school choice. It would fix all of this. When, so we, we hear a lot about outcomes, and it's all about outcomes. And everyone, all sides of the issue talk about outcomes. And it, it means different things to different people. And the, the outcome, so some people think the outcome is a, is a standardized test score. Some people think the outcome is a, a graduation rate. Some people think the outcome is how many kids get into college. Are any of those actually outcomes that should matter? I mean, I guess in the short term, right? I, I guess any outcome is better. If you're going to a drug-infested, yeah. gang-infested school in Chicago, living and being alive yeah. is an outcome. Yeah. But where should we get to in, in really looking at outcomes that matter from our schooling system? Yeah, I mean, all those things that you listed are inputs, not out- outputs, right? Those are, those are not outcomes that we actually care about. So if you were just to step away from the system real quick and have a conversation with any normal person and you said, what's your goal of the education system or what's the goal of education in general, they would tell you, I want people to, my, my children to live a successful life. And that might mean a different per- thing to your family than it does to my family. It might be, you know, going out and making a lot of money. It might be just being happy with your life. It might be, um, but they want to just say, oh, I want them to be able to do a really good job at bubbling in answers and getting a high as a standardized test score as possible. They might say that because they they think that that's a way to be successful on in these other things and makes they think that might be a path to college and, and, and higher paying jobs is what they really want. So these things are just inputs, not outputs. And also, you know, we talked about stuff like Praxis, that employers are looking at things beyond degrees and, and beyond standardized tests. Now they're, they're looking at things like portfolios. What can you actually produce? Um, because that's more important, right? If, if the employer wants to know what you can do for them, they don't want to know if you got a, a gold star, right? right? And that's essentially what the <laughs> the college education system is right now. You, you do learn some valuable things in college, uh, but I think a lot of the things that you learn in college is is just, you know, stuff that you're not going to use ever again after you I- escape the system. And even if you do use it again, you probably need to refresh on it and go look up some YouTube videos later or, 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 or read a book on the subject if you really want to use that information later on in life for whatever type of project you may see. So there are, there are benefits of college. I, th- I just think right now that the costs outweigh the benefits. And so like 
looking at the K through 12 system, uh, all of these outputs like or, or outcomes like uh, graduation rates from high school, uh, enrollment in college, and standardized tests, all of these things can be gamed. They're all subject to Campbell's law that uh, whenever a measure becomes a target, that measure essentially becomes useless. If you are here in DC right now, uh, just a year or two ago, Max Eden wrote, and Lindsey Burke wrote a good article on the DC fraud and failure in their public schools in that they boasted a 100% graduation rate. And, uh, you know, like half of these kids weren't even at school half the time. So, you know, the, the graduation rate became the measure of interest. And so what did they do to look good? They just said everybody gets a trophy, right? Everybody graduates whether you attend school or not. And so we saw, we saw this with the Atlanta cheating sca uh, scandal on the test. They were actually bubbling in answers for students to get higher test scores. Um, and then also just there's the issues of teaching to the test. So maximizing standardized test scores does not maximize. Because they get dollars for that, right? I mean, yeah, in many cases. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's an incentive to do this. And when you, especially when you assi uh, assign an incentive to these outcome measures, it, it definitely makes the, the outcome measure uh, useless. But even if you don't have a financial incentive to do so, there's just this a, a appearance incentive. And so um, I think that's a huge issue. I think it's a bigger issue in the system of residentially assigned government schools because uh, customers can see, you know, all this bogus that's going on. And if, if they see that there's bogus going on, they can vote with their feet to other schools and they can see the quality of those schools, you know, with rating systems, with like five-star rating systems. We have great school review scores. We have Google review scores that we can see whether these schools are good schools or not. We can ask people in our community whether they think this particular school is a good school or not. Mm -hmm. And if you ask parents why they p pick particular schools, uh, uh, one school over another, there's been long surveys on this. So like Jason Bedrick from EdChoice and Lindsey Burke from the Heritage Foundation did a survey of over 13,000 families in Florida using their education uh, savings account program, which is a private school choice program that you, it's essentially like a voucher. And they ranked standardized test scores out of like 10 or 15 different things, almost at the very bottom. I want to say it's the very bottom. Only 4% of the respondents of these 13,000 respondents listed standardized test scores as one of their top three reasons for choosing their particular school. They listed things like safety. They listed things like culture of the school. They listened, listed things like civic, uh, you know, civic education and moral education. And so, they, you know, families value a lot more than what's your high school graduation rate? What's your college enrollment rate? What's your standardized test score? And so like technocrats get very obsessed with these types of measures and they think that they could force schools to be, you know, excellent just by mandating things from the top down. But those crude metrics miss a lot of the on the ground knowledge that essentially needs to be up to the individual schools and the families that are choosing those schools. I mean, so like, how do we choose restaurants? We don't say that the average calorie level of of something on the menu here is x and that therefore makes it a good or bad uh, restaurant that's essentially like saying this school has an average standardized math score of x right right and so we don't pick restaurants like that we don't pick schools like that we already have people picking schools based on other things yeah right and so i think families have figured out that rightly that their kids are much more than standardized test scores us academics in the ivory tower other academics in the ivory tower haven't figured this out yet. And so the parents know a lot more than the experts. And I've always said all along that the parents are the true experts when it comes to education. So speaking of experts and the technocrats, right? So 
from the business side, and 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 often you think of school choice, you think it's uh, it's the it, in many cases it's Republican versus Democrat, or it's uh, teachers unions versus Republicans, or what, or or even yeah. business, right? But it can get more complicated than that. So thinking in terms about the business community, so in a business, to the point you just made, I mean, I've started three businesses, business owners, bad, well, good, effective business owners would never judge the success of their business based on how much how, it, their expenses increased last year or the number of employees they have, right? What's, what's the outcome? Are we profitable? Did yeah, we make money? Yeah. I mean, there's certain other factors, right? Oh, hey, we have a, we have a culture, but, but in the end, all that contributes to, did we make money last year? <laughs> Yet there's a lot of folks in the business community who are otherwise pretty successful, billionaires like a Bill Gates, right? At running companies who try to then take that technocrat model of, of top down and you know we had common core. And it was this, it was almost the other side of the coin, right? Of, of we know what's gonna happen. We want standardized test scores. We want the bots. We're gonna flood the system with money, force you to do this. What's wrong with that model? Oh, there's a ton, of, a ton of stuff wrong with that model. First is, you know, this whole way of thinking tends to come from a lot of very smart people. And I'll never say that Bill Gates is not a smart person. I'll never say that academics calling to end voucher programs based on test scores aren't smart people. I think they're very intelligent people. It's just they think that they're so smart that they think, you know, to quote Adam Smith, that they're the man of the system, hmm. that they can just, that people are just pawns on chessboards that they can move around and configure to make the world perfect. The thing is, children's educations are much more complicated than a standardized test score. I mean, you can you can run a, a particular business and say we, you know, it, we're we're our product is, for example, creating this this widget, whatever it is, and we we know if we created that widget or not, and so they can kind of run the factory that way and run the assembly line. But with children, there's so many different. Uh, dimensions of quality. We've got, you know, academics, which are slightly, you know, covered by math and reading standardized test scores and science standardized test scores. But you've got things like civic outcomes, you have social emotional learning, you have character building, you have morality building, you have, you know, is the kid going to be involved in a gang when he goes to school? Is he, does, is he getting beat up? Is there bullying going on? So there's a ton of different things that go in, into this process that the regulators just they do not have that information. Uh, and even if you started reporting on this stuff, it just becomes infinitely complex that people from the top down cannot manage these systems no matter how smart you are. It's, an, it's a coordinate, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a knowledge problem, like Hayek would say. So like, for example, if, even if we bought the argument that test scores were perfect proxies for success, which they're not because effects on test scores very often don't predict these longer term outcomes that we actually care about, and you can have you know good test scores but bad safety at your school. So there's a lot of disconnects there in the literature, which I could talk to or we could link to in the, in the comments later. But uh, even if we bought the argument that test scores were perfect proxies for long-term outcomes, none of these regulators perfectly control for the differences in students being served by the schools. So what we end up doing is punishing schools for serving disadvantaged students because we either just look at the average test scores or we look at things like test score growth, which is a little better, but 
different types of students grow at different rates. Less advantaged students grow at different rates. So even if you're looking at test score growth, that's a flawed metric as well. And the unintended consequence is that you're punishing schools for trying to serve disadvantaged kids. And you reward schools for serving, you know, the, the kids who just come from well-to-do families. And, we, and, and that's no way to, 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 to build the system. We should be trying to help every student. And if you're tying monetary incentives to it, you're also maybe incentivizing bad behavior. I know uh, one school that would put these kids who didn't, you know, it was a gifted program. And I, I assume, I can only assume they were getting money based on how many kids are put in the gifted yeah. program. Mm-hmm. And they were putting kids in there who didn't even come close on the test. That's cruel to those students. But the principal's getting better marks, right? He's yeah. getting judged better and they're making money. But, but it's cruel. The, and brought up Gates and, and offline we were talking, I just saw an article where he, he and Melinda send out their annual letter. And the one thing he said, oh man, you know, we're able to, 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 you know, we know a certain amount of dollars in public health equals a certain amount of outcomes, which the ones he listed, we could probably have a whole nother discussion on whether or not that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said, uh, you know, it just, education has been a tough nut to crack. We made a big bet on common core and we wanted, they, they tried to do this top-down model and it didn't work. Now in their eyes, it's probably because all oh, the political forces were too strong, but maybe there's something to it in terms of the, the, uh, uh, people inherently know that coercion is wrong. Now, even though they choose their own, uh, their own deaths and failure by not making the school choice. You, you know, if, if you go down, do you, are you satisfied with the school system? No. Yeah. Well, let's fix it. No way. You know, why do people do that? Why yeah, do, you but, know? And what's strange to me is academics, these very smart people will just look at these studies in a few places and they'll say, uh, you know, these aren't the outcomes I want based on standardized test scores. So we shouldn't allow families to choose their schools. So like, They'll always bring up Louisiana. It's the only experimental study of a negative effect of a voucher program on test scores. It's in Louisiana. I argue it's partially because, you know, it's the most one of the most highly regulated voucher programs in the U.S. They have tons of regulations. None of the private schools want to participate in the program. They have very low participation rates, and it's the lower quality schools that do participate because they need the funding more than anyone else. Mm. But it's also because parents aren't only caring about test scores. They probably... They're choosing these schools for a reason, even if they're not the best private schools, they're probably choosing it so their kids don't get involved in gangs. So I just always think it's really strange that academics think they're so important that, and I have a lot of friends that are academics, I'm not saying all academics are like this, but some academics think they're so important and they feel so important in saying, I know what the evidence says on this particular program, because I know this evidence, you should have to listen to me and we should get rid of these voucher programs, essentially, even though most of the evidence says positive things. And they'll even make the argument that, well, look, this voucher program didn't work in Louisiana, so we shouldn't allow people to have a voucher program in California. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. So even if we buy the argument that these people in Louisiana didn't choose the right schools, why are you going to tell me, based on their decisions, that I can't have school choice in California or in in, in other areas? It doesn't make any sense. And then also, it's just Low-income families should not have to prove anything to academics or bureaucrats to be able to choose the schools for their kids. If academics and bureaucrats see that the test scores went down a little bit, it shouldn't be, the burden of proof shouldn't be on me as a parent to be able to choose schools for my kids. It's just like, 
with food stamps, you know, and, or with Pell Grants for just to use an education example. We don't do like standardized testing like two years after you get the Pell Grant to make sure your test scores went up. Yeah. And that's essentially what they're doing with K through 12 vouchers. People should just be able to pick their schools, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you are, I mean, I, I, I think, and, and it, things get lost, right, in the debate and the, and the politics of the debate and, and uh, fear mongering from the other side. And, and that if you are unlucky enough, and I use the term unlucky in the universal sense of, of God puts you in the womb of your mother who happens to live in a gang-infested, unsafe area with horrible schools. What opponents of school choice are saying is, too bad. You have to stay there because if you want to leave, you're going to jeopardize the jobs of the teachers, of, well, may not even the teachers, of the administrators, of the janitors, of, of whoever works in that system. And so you need to stay in that school. We don't care if you're going to get shot at. We don't care if you're not going to go to college. We don't care about whatever. You are condemned to that because we know better. It's deeply immoral. Yeah. And, you know, I make the evidence case for school choice all the time, and it tends to be positive in the favor of school choice, especially if you're looking at non-test score outcomes. But every time I present this evidence, I say more and more, I'm saying, who cares? Yeah. It should not, I should not have to bring you these peer-reviewed studies to be able to give people freedom. People should just, the default should be you get to pick, and then maybe if you're picking something extremely bad, maybe then the government steps in. Maybe. But the default should be that we should trust parents to make decisions for their own kids. We shouldn't residentially assign them to go to a particular school um, and, and not trust them. We trust them with everything else, essentially, in life. We should trust them with education as well. So final question. You're at the Reason Foundation, right? We're here in the Cato Institute and free markets, free minds, and, and there is a system in society, but but I think one of, I, I consider school a media, a form of media. I think church pulpits are media, parents are media, you know, where we are programmed increasingly to uh, have less personal responsibility over our lives and to trust someone. Someone is going to come save us. Um, and it's like the question about, well, who, you know, you homeschool, don't you have to prove it to the government? <laughs> the school part of the with compulsionary with compulsion compulsionary is that even a word with compulsory schooling right beyond outcomes and beyond better education isn't it a threat to just our way of life and freedom overall when we are churning out uh not only bots who may or may not be effective or useful for a job market that's going to change with automation and everything in five or ten years but when we are churning out people who, you know, there's a lot of talk about fake news. But if you look at the founding of this country, fake news was abundant. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was funding fake news. Benjamin Franklin, every political party had their own newspaper. And yet we survived because we had critical thinkers who thought for themselves. And when you look at what's going on now in any political debate, the programming that is in people's minds of we need someone to save us we need uh the the angels of bureaucracy to come in and 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 make sure everything's right does this you know compulsory schooling and monopoly schooling where everything is the same message 
Is that not a threat overall to free minds and free markets which on which oh, this country was based? I mean, absolutely. I mean, for one, if you want to have free minds and free markets, you have to have a good education system. You have to actually learn things. And if you have a monopoly system, the likelihood of you learning things is not very good, especially if you're from a, you know, in a low-income area of town or if you're just not residentially assigned to the best government-run school. But then secondly, when we have one provider of the service, the government, then that service is largely going to be uniform. It's going to be one type of education. It's essentially like having one newspaper. I think that's kind of where you were yeah, getting at, yeah. that you essentially have one source of information. And yeah, there are local districts, but they're all essentially the same providers. It's all the government, and it's all mandated you know, by the state governments and then also regulated by the federal government as well. You have like essentially like a 13-layer cake of different um, you know, g- regulatory bodies over your district, your local district schools. And so I think, again, school choice is another fix for that. I mean, you, then you can get a lot of different providers of the service that will have, you know, different type, different ways of doing it, but then also, uh, you know, different ways of teaching kids and then also just stronger competitive pressures to actually teach kids so that they can actually have free minds in the long run. And another argument for school choice, since we're at Cato, I'm going to give a shout out to Neil McCluskey. He's the director, the current director of the Center for Educational Freedom here. He started something years ago called the Cato Institute Battle Map. And what he does is just, he has a map of the U.S. and has a lot of little pins on it just showing a lot of battles that go on in traditional public schools over a lot of different deep cult- cultural issues sure. such as you know is there is this professor to or this um, teacher too liberal or are they too conservative um, there's one point on the map where the science teacher drowned a an animal I don't remember what type of animal it was I think it was a puppy drowned the puppy or maybe not maybe it was a different type of yeah. animal but it was a furry type of animal and people just disagree on these deep cultural things and a lot of people say that there's a lot of left-leaning bias in the schools, particularly in, in higher ed educational institutions, but I don't care as much about the higher ed sure. issue. I care about a compulsory system yeah, in K true, through 12. You can, at least, yeah. you can at least choose to have that college education or not. You can choose Hillsdale mm-hmm. for the conservative side, or you can choose any other college for the other side. Yeah. Um, and at least there's that choice there. But I, I'm really concerned about when you have a teacher that is indoctrinating students and telling them that the you know this particular party is is a bad uh, a party or they're evil. For example, I'll just share it. I, I shared a a whiteboard picture from Arizona in a traditional public school. The teacher drew direct links on the board. They were trying to teach about political ideology, and on the conservative side, they circled things like the Second Amendment, and they did a a direct line to things like fascism. Hmm which doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, the Second Amendment protects you from fascism, yeah, yeah, right, first of yeah. all. And then they also drew the line to uh, genocide even. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my mind that that type of uh, things are going on in our schools. And I think that will be one of the ultimate biggest push for school choice in the future is that parents are going to not like these deep problems that are going on, that they perceive to be deep problems going on in their schools. And they're going to argue, well, 
I should be able to send my kid to a, a, a different kind of school that where my kid and if isn't the socialists wanted their own school, have it. That, I'm completely it, fine with right? that. I'm completely yeah. fine with that. But if we want to live in a pluralist society, we need to be able to be okay with other people choosing different things than we choose for our children. The, the problem is that people want to force other families to send their kids into the traditional public school system so that they can be indoctrinated in the way that they want uh, other people's kids to be, to, to be indoctrinated. That's the issue that I see is that we have this push against pluralism. And before we cut off, I want to yeah. hit something I thought about on the previous question, which is, you know, a lot of people, there, there's a moral import, imperative for school choice that if you think about it, if you don't let people leave an unsafe school, you're dooming them to be in a school where it ruins their life in the long run, but then also makes them subject to gang activity, drugs, and violence, um, which they wouldn't, they, they would not, uh, uh, encounter if they had a choice to go to a, a safer school, for example. And they may not they may still encounter it, but perhaps not as much in a different educational environment. In Florida, for example, they actually already have a voucher program that ju they just passed one or two years ago called the Hope Scholarship Program. If you're a victim of bullying, you can use that scholarship to go to a different school. So essentially Florida essentially uh, in a way has universal school choice because I could just say I was bullied, right, I'm gonna go right. to a private school, but as of right now, I think only like 100 students are using it. But I think if people start figuring this out, you have to have like some type of ri written report, but anybody can get, get a written report. And so that could be a way to get school choice expanded much larger in the future if, if we see people in Florida start to use this program more extensively. But you, you pointed out that some people will argue that, well, this will hurt hurt the public schools if you allow people to take their education dollars elsewhere. But the thing is that most people don't, think about this all that much is that the traditional public schools, when they lose students to school choice competition, actually financially benefit on a per pupil basis. And the reason for this is that even though traditional public schools are funded based on student enrollment counts, they're not completely funded based on student enrollment counts. Hmm. It tends to be around 60 to 80% of your funding is determined by the number of students you have in the school. In Texas, for example, where I grew up, it's only about 66% of the funding. So if you think about that mathematically, when you lose the student to a private school, uh, you get to keep 33% of the funding. And so mathematically, you must have more dollars per pupil left behind in the school. <laughs> and so I like to bring up the Trader Joe's thing again. Yeah. Just imagine if, tr if I left Trader Joe's to go to Whole Foods for whatever reason. I like Trader Joe's better myself. So let's just imagine I went to from Whole Foods to Trader Joe's. And what if Whole Foods got to keep 33% of my grocery bill each week? They'd be super happy about that. Right. And so my argument is that the public schools should be super happy that they get to keep any money. Uh, they're actually profiting from school choice and, and competition from school choice. They should lose 100% of the funding for not educating those children. I always ask the defenders of the status quo, well, how many dollars should you get to keep for not educating this child? You get to keep 33% right now. How much more do you need? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then they'll argue, well, we got to keep the lights on, right? There's fixed costs, but Trader Joe's has fixed costs. Whole Foods have fixed costs. They deal with it. And the reality is that all costs are variable in the long run. Sure. You, you need to be able to adjust with your, your fluctuation in, in customers. And customers. Yeah. But right now we have a, a set number of customers through compulsory education. You can't do anything about it. And in the private sector, as in the public sector, when there is a monopoly, whether it's government monopoly or otherwise prices don't fall quality doesn't rise and yes. um and that's what we're confining people to we'll 
Corey DeAngelis. Thanks. Keep up the fight for educational freedom. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome.